Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. As you're seated, I'll just mention that Sunil may not only be the best-dressed member of Jacob's Well Church, uh, he's also probably the best cook at Jacob's Well Church. And so uh, if your family wants a treat, offer to buy all the groceries and see if he has time. He's very busy, but to come and, and make you a, a meal. He's, he loves food, and he's really good at making it. I've shared this with you, I think, before, but uh, three of my sons are playing peewee football this year, and I've had the privilege to coach my oldest son, Corbin. And yesterday was our final game, and we went into the game with two wins and three losses, and because of the way it all worked out, if, if we won that game, we would get a trophy, and we would kind of be the top of our league in, in our little area. Um, and so we went into the game, and and, and, and we really, really wanted to win. I really, really wanted to win. For the kids, of course, right? Um, for the kids. Really wanted to win. And with two minutes left, we're up by six points. Uh, all seems well. Um, but you can guess how the story goes. They score. They get the extra points. And we lose by one point, 14 to 13. And so, um, and so we went and, and tried to be positive. We had the end of the year you know, pizza party and stuff like that. And I get home and my youngest son, Cooper, he, he comes out and he points out to me, he says, hey, dad, this year my, my team went undefeated. And I'm like, oh, that's great, Cooper, that's awesome. He goes, you know what, Caleb's team went undefeated too. My other son, I'm like, that's awesome. And he's like, and your team? Well, uh, uh, not so much. And, <laughs> and he wasn't trying to be mean. He just kind of realized at that moment that they were both undefeated and my team was far from undefeated. And this uh, wave of failure came over me because as much as maybe we try not to believe this, our world defines greatness in numbers. Uh, I, I wanted to be a great coach. I wanted to have a great season. I wanted to make great players. But our record dictated something otherwise. In our world, greatness is determined by wins and losses by numbers and statistics, by quality and quantity. If you want to be acknowledged as a great student, what do we look at? Your GPA, your ACT score. If you want to be a great business owner, we look at your profit. If you want to be a great athlete, we look at your statistics. If we want to be a great employee, we look at your margins. If you want to be great parents, we look at your children's quantifiable numbers. We define greatness and therefore our worth by numbers. And when the numbers don't work out the way we want them to be, we often feel like failures. And we become preoccupied with this pursuit of greatness to 
somehow prove to ourselves and others that we are valuable. Our pursuit of greatness is highlighted by this book by Jim Collins. It shows how, how just the human inclination is a hunger for greatness. That none of us want to be called to mediocrity, but we want to be great. The book is called Good to Great, and it has sold over 4 million copies. And the book opens with this line that many people have made the mantra of their life. And the line goes like this, good is the enemy of great. You've probably heard that. He goes on to say, good is the enemy of great, and that is one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. We don't have great schools, principally because we have good schools. We don't have great governments, principally because we have good governments. Few people attain great lives, he says, in large part because it is just so easy to settle for a good life. This book has sold four million copies because the human heart hungers for greatness. You know, it was no different in Jesus' time. Last week, Pastor Jonathan did a great job of expounding John 13, 1 through 11. Uh, if you weren't here or if, if you don't remember, it was about how uh, Jesus had washed the disciples' feet during that final Passover meal, the Last Supper. And in the midst of it, in the midst of washing their feet, he is teaching them something. Now, the question is, why did Jesus wash their feet? Uh, what was the purpose of this? And what's interesting is just before this happened, and, and in the Gospel of John, which we're going through, it doesn't include this conversation, but there is a conversation amongst the disciples that happens just prior to Jesus washing their feet. And like I said, it's not in the Gospel of John, it's in the Gospel of Luke. And so before we dive into John 13 today, I actually want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 22. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you. It's page 882. Uh, Luke is in, in that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please keep that Bible. But as we look at Luke chapter 22, what we'll see is the heading above verse 7 says, the Passover with the disciples. And so, uh, and then in verse 14, the heading there says, institution of the Lord's Supper. And so those are important because it, it helps us to understand that the event that Luke is talking about there in Luke chapter 22 is the same event, the same Passover meal, Last Supper, that John is talking about in John chapter 13. 13. And so then we go down and we get to, to Luke 24, and you probably see the heading above that one. Uh, in my Bible, it says the heading is, Who is the Greatest? And so let's look, Luke chapter 22. Uh, let's just read 24 through 27. It says, A dispute also arose among them, the disciples at the Passover meal, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, to be, re now to be clear, they're not arguing like, Peter isn't saying to John, oh, John, you're the greatest. And John's saying, no, Peter, you're the greatest. That's not, they're arguing that they are the greatest, right? They're the greatest disciple that Jesus has. Verse 25, and Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest or the lesser, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? In other words, the customer or the busboy. Which one is greater? Well, in the world's view, he says, is it not the one who reclines at the table? 
But, Jesus says, in contrast to the world's view of greatness, Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus is not disputing our hunger for the pursuit of greatness. Rather, Jesus is trying to redefine what greatness is. We see this throughout the Gospels. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In Mark 9, we read that as the disciples and Jesus are coming back from Capernaum, uh, when they get to a house, Jesus asks them, he says, hey, what were you discussing on the way? And Mark says, but they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They didn't want to say this to Jesus because they were ashamed of it. And Jesus sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Again, Jesus does not discourage his disciples to pursue greatness. Rather, Jesus redefines the greatness that we should pursue. You see, the world gauges greatness by how many people serve us. But God gauges greatness by how many people we serve. The world gauges greatness by how much others give up for us. God gauges greatness by how much we give up for others. The world gauges greatness by how high we go. God gauges greatness by how low we go. Jesus is not telling us to not pursue greatness. Rather, Jesus is challenging us to seek a greater greatness than the world is aware of. Let's go ahead and flip over to John chapter 13. I think that context, that conversation is really important for understanding the purpose of the foot washing. But here's the context we're in again. Uh, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. Jesus redefines what greatness is by washing the disciples' feet. And then we get to verse 12. And so, again, it's page 899 in the Red Bible. Um, verse 12, we'll read through verse 20. It says, When he, Jesus, had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we come today confessing uh, that there is a hunger for greatness in all of our hearts. 
And we confess, Lord, that we often define greatness the way the world does. I know I do. Lord, forgive us for our pursuit of worldly greatness. Pray today that that you would dethrone us. That we would see from your example and from your teaching what godly greatness is. And that you would give us the power and the focus to be great for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you guess who said this? I want everyone to bear witness, I am the greatest. I'm the greatest thing that ever lived. I must be the greatest. I showed the world. I shook up the world. I'm the king of the world. You must listen to me. I am the greatest. Anybody know who said that? Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali. That's right. Well, few of us would be audacious enough to say something like that out loud. I wonder for how many of us that is the desire of our heart, whether it be in the workplace, the art gallery, the battlefield, high school play, or the, the dance team, or school, whatever it might be, How many of us want others to bow down before us? How many of us want others to acknowledge our greatness? Friends, our definition of greatness has been so skewed by our sin. And God is helping us through this passage today to redefine what greatness is. Jesus defines greatness in this way. And this is is the working definition of greatness I want to have for the passage that we're studying today. So you may, if you're a note taker, you might want to write this down. It's very simple. Greatness is defined this way. Sacrificially serving others. Sacrificially serving others. With this definition, I want to ask the question, how do we pursue greatness? How do we pursue greatness in our school, in our workplace, in our community, in our homes, even on a football team? How do we pursue greatness in all of these areas? Well, there are three things Jesus shows us today, and they're kind of like three legs of a stool. If you take any of them away, it all falls to the crown. First, we must do greatness. Second, we must believe greatness. And third, we must receive greatness. These aren't necessarily in a particular order, but we must do greatness, believe greatness, and receive greatness as greatness is defined by Christ. First, do greatness. Look at verse 12 with me again says, when he, Jesus, had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? In other words, you are there arguing about who the greatest one is, but can you understand what I'm trying to communicate about greatness? Verse 13, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So digging into these verses a little bit, Jesus first says, you call me teacher. Teacher would have been an elite position of the time. Jesus was considered a rabbi, which would have been cream of the crop. Even in the culture worldwide, Greek philosophers were like rock stars, and so teachers were very prominent people. 
But Jesus also says, you call me Lord, which means to some degree the disciples understood that Jesus had authority and dominion. To the expanse that they understood that, I'm not sure, but they understood to some degree that Jesus was a teacher, that Jesus was Lord. And Jesus says of this, you're right, I am. I am those things. Verse 14, he says, if then your Lord and teacher, this great authority, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. As was mentioned last week, washing feet was a very dirty job without the convenience of modern shoes. Feet would often be covered in mud and sludge and and fecal matter and strange substances. But in addition to that, feet would have been extremely callous, would have been very smelly, probably the most unattractive part of a person's body. And because of this, the washing of other people's feet was humiliating. It was disgusting. It was repulsive. There was actually a law that a Jewish slave was not allowed to wash the feet of another Jew because it was so demeaning for a person to wash another person's feet. And so Jesus is revealing to them the disparity between who he is, what he deserves, and what he has just done. Think of Think of John the Baptist's response when he sees Jesus. When, when Jesus appears, John the Baptist says, I am unworthy to untie Jesus' sandals. And yet, Jesus doesn't merely come to untie the sandals of his disciples. Jesus sticks his face into the filthiest, grossest, dirtiest part of them and washes it clean. Do you see the disparity between what Christ deserved and what Christ did. I mean, think about this. This is God washing feet. Jesus continues, and and, and notice the words do and greater in in these verses, verse 15 through 17. He says, for I have given you an example that you also should do. Uh, not ponder, not think about, not appreciate, not consider. You should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly. By the way, when you see that, it means verily, verily, you know, amen, amen. This is important. This is important. Okay. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, disciples, you are not greater than me, your master. If you know these things, blessed are you if you, what's the word? Do them. Verse 17, Jesus is saying, if you want to be blessed, don't just recognize my sacrificial, humiliating, repulsive, humble service. If you want to be blessed, go and do likewise. To do greatness, Jesus tells us, we must serve sacrificially, generously, humbly, lovingly, lowly, even despicably. Doing for others what no one else wants to do. You know, probably the biggest mentor in my life in terms of what it looks like to serve like Jesus is my wife. Um, You may not know this because she doesn't parade a lot of stuff, but I can give you several examples when we were dating, uh, we would, I lived in Columbia, Missouri. She lived in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. We would meet at my sister's house in Kansas City because we could have our own rooms and things like that. And, 
and, and Trisha would, would clean their bathroom. Uh, every time she'd come, like, like not just pick up stuff, but she would like take all the chemicals out from under the seat. She would scrub the floor. She would scra- scrape off like the, the nasty stuff in the toilet. Uh, she would do all of that. Uh, she did it for my other sister when we went to Texas too. When we go out to eat, uh, Trisha will, she'll, she'll start bussing the table for the waiter. And I'm like, this is what we pay them to do, Trish. Like this isn't what we're supposed to do, but she'll, she'll start stacking the plates, picking stuff off, off the floor. To give you a simpler example of what, what it looks like to serve sacrificially uh, from another person, my friend Chris, I still remember this in college, I was driving him home one day from somewhere, and, and my friend Chris loved Jesus, and, and, uh, and, and, he's, and he just starts grabbing stuff in my car. I'm like, what are you doing? And what he's doing, he's grabbing all my trash. I'm kind of, I, don't, I like to think I'm a clean person, but I'm really not. And so he's grabbing all these op- like empty soda you know, bottles and stuff. And, he, and so he, he grabs them all. He looks at me with a big smile and says, Jesus loves you. And I, I just see him walking towards his front door with all of my trash, like just going. My friend Chris and, and, and my wife Trisha, they, they didn't serve to impress people. Honestly, they have much bigger accolades they could have put in front of us. But, but they served because they knew that the master had served them. They knew this was the way of the master. They knew this was the way of greatness. You see, Jesus served us not to become great. He was already great. Jesus served us as a display of his greatness and a calling for us to go and do greatness towards others. You know, I love this quote from Tim Keller. I probably said it too many times, but it's still so convicting to me. Tim says, it is easy to love humanity, but it is hard to love humans. You know, in some ways, it is so much easier to go and serve strangers, which, yes, we are called to do. But what does it look like to sacrificially serve the people in your spheres? What does it look like to sacrificially serve the people that you worship with? to sacrificially serve the people you work with, to sacrificially serve the people in your house, the people who get on your nerves, the people who frustrate you, the people who do not serve you. This is the service that Christ is calling us to. Who is the Judas in your life? Who is out to get you? Jesus knows what that's like. And what did he do? Christ washed his feet as a display of Christ's greatness. What would it look like for you to serve the Judas in your life? Mark 10, the Lord Jesus says this. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. There's no loopholes there. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, let us not just plan on doing greatness to humanity someday. Let us plan to do greatness to humans today. By serving them sacrificially as Christ has served us. So how do we become great. Well, first off, we must do greatness, humbly serving others as Christ has served us. Secondly, we must believe greatness. Verse 18, Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Now, this 
this, this word chosen here in this passage, I don't think Jesus is talking in terms of salvation. I know that's many times where our heads go. But Jesus is talking chosen in, in the midst that he chose his apostles. Um, Jesus chose those who he would disciple for three years of his ministry. There were no surprises. He knew who he was getting. He knew what mess he was getting into. And I think that's very clear as we continue to read verse 18. He says, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. In this passage, Jesus is quoting Psalm 41, in which King David is lamenting over Ahithophel, uh, one of his close associates who he trusted, who had given godly advice to him for many years, but who had then betrayed him and joined forces with King David's son, um, Abimelech, in order to overthrow, uh, I'm sorry, Absalom, in order to overthrow King David. And so this is David lamenting over that betrayal. And just as Jesus is often called the greater David, Judas is now being called the greatest, the greater Ahithophel. Judas would betray his king just as Ahithophel did. Verse 18, again, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Jesus says something similar to this back in John chapter 6. Jesus says to the disciples, says, did I not choose you? the 12, and yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. And so when Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen, he's saying, listen, I know who I have chosen. I know I have chosen a devil amongst you. I know I have chosen someone to betray me. Now, why, why does Jesus communicate this? Why is he telling them that he knows he has chosen a betrayer to be an apostle? I mean, you look at this, Jesus says, not all of you are clean, talking about Judas. Jesus says, one of you will lift your heel against me, talking about Judas. Verse 21, which we'll cover next week, Jesus says, truly, truly, one of you will betray me, talking about Jesus. Why, why is Jesus trying to reveal that he knows the plans of Judas and that it was a part of what he was doing? Well, verse 19 tells us. Jesus says, I am telling you this now before it takes place. Why? That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. The English translation loses a little bit of power here because that last word in that verse, the word he, is added for our understanding. It's actually not there in the original language. In the original language, it just ends with the word, with the phrase, I am. And, and so it goes, I'm telling you this now before it takes place. Why? That when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Th this is an echo of Exodus chapter 3 when, when God appears to Moses in a burning bush and Moses says, who should I say sent me? What's your name, God? And the, God says, I am who I am. Tell the people of Israel that the I am has sent you. And so I am is a name that God gives to himself. And now once again, Jesus is claiming this name for himself. And so Jesus is saying, I am telling you about the coming betrayal of Judas. So that when it happens, you will believe, you will know that I am God. And this is part of my divine plan to sacrificially serve you. The disciples would indeed need the reminder. If you remember when, when they come, when Judas comes to betray Jesus, Peter pulls out his sword to thwart the plan of Judas and cuts off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. 
And do you remember how Jesus responds to, to Peter in that time? He says, put your sword back. He said, do you think I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once, immediately, instantaneously, send more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? You know, it's amazing in the Gospels when one angel appears, do you know what their first words almost always are? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's how awesome and mighty an angel is. And yet Jesus says, listen, I could call a legion of angels, which is 5,000 angels. I could call 12 legions of angels to replace each one of you disciples. I could have 60,000 angels here in a snap of the fingers. But Jesus says, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And so again, why did Jesus choose Judas to be a disciple? Why did Jesus give hints of Judas's coming betrayal? Why did Jesus not call down 60,000 angels to rescue him from his executioners? So that the scriptures may be fulfilled. So that the plan of God may be fulfilled. So that Jesus, although declared innocent, could die on the cross for your sin and for mine and raise on the third day to give us newness of life. Jesus is telling them, this betrayal is not outside of my will. It is in line with my will to be the sacrificial servant for your salvation. This past week, um, my kids were watching TV and I was passing by and, and this one uh, national commentator on sports had talked about how if he could choose a quarterback from all times, he would choose Aaron Rodgers to be his quarterback, from, which I don't know, you may agree or disagree with that. But I, I turned my kids, I'm like, oh man, they just called Aaron Rodgers the GOAT. And they're like, GOAT? What are you talking about? Maybe you know what GOAT means. GOAT is an acronym for greatest of all time. Some of you probably know that. But the GOAT was, was, was based on his statistics, on what he could do on the field, right? Jesus is the GOAT. He's the greatest of all times according to God's definition of greatness. Jesus is the goat who displays his greatness, not by exalting himself, but by humbling himself. Jesus displays his greatness not by going high, but by going low. He displays his greatness not by being served, but by serving others and giving his life as a ransom for many. And so let me ask, do you believe the greatness of Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is God incarnate and that he went to the cross not as a victim, but he went as a part of the divine will of God to save you from the depths of hell, to rescue you, and to bring you to himself for all eternity? This is believing in true greatness of a true sacrificial servant. Jesus is the goat. He's the greatest of all time. He was the best, greatest sacrificial servant of all time, laying down his life for you and for me. And so if we want to pursue greatness, we must do greatness by sacrificially serving others as Christ has served us. We must believe greatness, believing that Christ came to die and raise again, that it wasn't a mistake or an oversight, but this was the plan of his from eternity past for our salvation. And finally, we must receive greatness. Verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. 
When Jesus says, um, whoever receives the one I send, he's talking about the apostles, the disciples, anybody that goes forth with the good news of the message of Jesus. And he says, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And, and whoever receives me, Jesus says, receives the one who sent me, who is God the Father. And so in this, in this verse, we learn a lot of stuff. First off, we learn that there is an inseparable connection between Jesus and his church. An inseparable connection between you, if you are a Christian, and Jesus. That if you go somewhere with, with, with the gospel message as a gospel messenger and they receive you, they're not just receiving you, they're receiving Jesus because you are inseparably linked. And not only are they receiving Jesus, but they're also receiving God the Father because the Trinity cannot be dissolved either. And so there is this tight union between us and the God of the universe. That's one thing we learn here. The other thing we learn here is that believing is not enough. Believing in God, believing in Jesus, believing in the gospel is not enough. You can believe Jesus is the great I am. You can believe Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. You can believe Jesus died for your sins and rose on the third day. You can believe all of these things and still be sent to hell. You see, in James chapter 2, we read, you believe that God is one, you do well. It is good to believe these things. You must believe these things. But then he goes on and says, even the demons believe and shudder. Demons have great theology, better theology than you or I do. Matter of fact, if you look through the, the Gospel of Mark, the only one who knows who Jesus is, is the demons. They call him the Holy One of God. They believe, they know, they understand Jesus' identity. But that's not enough. We cannot just believe in Jesus. We must receive Jesus. This past week, our staff uh, had a training on how to use EpiPens. And the reason why we had this training is because once we're trained in this, we can now purchase EpiPens if there's enough supply, and we can, we can have them here in the church and use them when needed. Uh, for those of you who don't know what EpiPens are, basically EpiPens are, are a needle filled with this medicine called epinephrine, which is more or less adrenaline. And the purpose of it is if someone goes into anaphylactic shock and they're, they're, they're perishing, they're going to die, uh, what you do is you take the EpiPen and you put it into their thigh uh, and you, you, you count to 10, and, and, it, and it injects them with this epinephrine to, to save their life. Evidently, it works pretty quick. Now, now here's the thing. Um, you can't just know about the epinephrine pen, right? That's not going to save you. Uh, and you can't even just believe in the epinephrine pen. Like, you can't say, I believe the epinephrine pen can save me. That's not enough, right? You have to receive the epinephrine to be saved. I want to say this because I think it's really important because many of you here, let me just, high school kids, you have grown up in the church. You can probably, you know more of the scripture than Moses does. You could teach us all about God, about, about sin, about salvation. You could teach us all of these things about Jesus and it would be perfectly correct. Great orthodoxy, great theology. You can teach us all about Jesus. But have you received Jesus for yourself? Have you not just believed Jesus as Lord and Savior? Have you received him as your Lord and Savior? We must receive Jesus. If we want to pursue the greatness God has 
for our life, friends. We must do greatness by sacrificially serving others as Christ has served us. We must believe greatness that Christ is our great sacrificial servant who died for our sins to give us new life. And we must receive greatness, receiving Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Let me end with this. Another proof of our infatuation with greatness. I'm not sure how this happened, but somehow uh, Donald Trump became president of the United States. I I don't know how, but it happened. Um, And I'm not making a political statement here at all, so please don't hear that. But whether you voted for him or against him, you can probably remember his tagline, right? It it was printed on his hat, just, just four words. That's it. Make America great again. Friends, if we want to make America great, if we want to make Green Bay great, if we want to make the church great, if we want to make us great, hear the words of our Savior. Again, the Lord Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, God himself in the flesh, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, let us go today pursuing greatness. Not the greatness as the world defines us, but greatness as our Savior defined it. In his words, in his washing of feet, and in his death upon the cross. Let us pursue greatness today by sacrificially serving one another as Christ has so sacrificially served us. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would purge from our hearts the world's definition of greatness. It, it, it comes on top of us so quickly and we're so, we so easily bought into the lie of the worldly view of greatness. Remind us of the greatness that Christ shows us and tells us about. Let us pursue that greatness above all else, Lord God. That we would be great, not for us, not for our acclaim, but that we would pursue greatness to serve sacrificially, that you would be honored and glorified and worshiped and enjoyed for all eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.